There's a list of stories that are off the table right now in legacy media. And I think that's a problem. My Substack brings you some of these stories, along with the viewpoints you aren't likely to hear in the mainstream press. That's one way to challenge groupthink. Another way is to show the consequences of it. The lab leak theory of the pandemic's origin is a good example of this. What the press once considered a conspiracy theory is now the subject of serious scientific, journalistic, and government investigation. So what happened? Where did the press go wrong? What was the key question that wasn't being asked? How come these guys with interest in China are claiming it's a conspiracy theory to even ask a question about a lab leak? That was Toronto journalist Elaine Dewar. She's the author of a new book on the origin of the deadliest pandemic in 100 years, an investigation. The book is a deeply researched and riveting account of the lab leak theory. It also involves a pretty major lesson for those of us in the media, and one we might want to think about. Here's this week's episode of the Lean Out podcast, featuring Elaine Dewar. Elaine, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to get to speak with you about this book. I found it really fascinating and it's so in-depth. So there's lots to talk about. I'd like to start on a personal note. You opened the book at your mother's funeral. Your mother was 102 when she passed away in November of 2019. Tell me a little bit about her story and how that inspired you to investigate this pandemic. So my mother's mother died one day before my mother's first birthday. And it was a well-held family secret, at least well-held from my mother, that her stepmother was not, in fact, her real mother, that her real mother had died from the great flu epidemic of 1918. My mother did not discover that her stepmother was not her real mother until she was 14 years old after my grandfather and stepmother had moved the family to Prince Albert from a small town in southern Saskatchewan called Southey, which was one of the locus points of a Jewish colony of pioneers who came to Saskatchewan at the turn of the last century. Someone in Prince Albert knew my mother's story and asked her a number of questions that led to my mother asking her father and stepmother a number of questions. And to her horror, she realized that her entire extended family and her father and her stepmother had been lying to her for 14 years about her origin. That was unbelievably difficult for her to manage. It wrecked her sense of security in the world. It created waves of anxiety that lived with her for the rest of her life. And it taught me that secrets are dangerous and powerful. And I think it's why I became a journalist, because I learned to really dislike secrets, and journalism is about digging them out. Indeed. And this book is full of information that you have dug out. Let's set the stage here. We know that the lab leak theory was considered a conspiracy theory for quite some time. Before we get to why, let's walk the audience through what was the mainstream wet market theory for the first year or so of the pandemic? The the wet market theory started on December 31 of 2019, when the Chinese government officials went into the Huanan seafood market, which was 
deemed to be the place at which this thing had erupted and sterilized it, which made it very difficult to do proper scientific studies about the first versions of this virus. But it's also important to note that in the United States, within that first month, those who had been responsible for funding experiments at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is about 13 kilometers from that market, and others who had been involved in doing research with leadership at the Wuhan Center for Disease Control, which was 280 meters from that market, into bat-borne viruses, specifically coronaviruses, I think became extremely concerned very early on that this may have been a lab leak. And they moved by the first week in February to stamp out any public questioning of the possibility of a lab leak. This was widely considered a conspiracy theory for quite some time. It was marketed as a conspiracy theory. And I do want to get into how that came about. But I mean, we even had a New York Times COVID reporter tweeting that the lab leak theory had, quote, racist roots. You know, the media was well on side with the fact that this was a conspiracy theory. So walk me through how did this lab leak theory come to be viewed as a conspiracy? There was a meeting on January 31st by a person by the name of Christian Anderson and another virologist in Sydney with an affiliation at Fudan University in China, a phone meeting with Anthony Fauci of the NIAID, in which they raised the possibility that this was a virus that had been manipulated and possibly created in a lab. There was a meeting the very next day with Dr. Fauci's boss, Francis Collins, with the leading person in charge of the Wellcome Trust in Britain, which is another major funder of virological research, all kinds of biological research. And at that meeting, the business of possible lab leak versus not lab leak was thrashed out. Dr. Fauci says that more people were leaning against the lab leak than leaning toward it. But the fact remains that two days later, people were drafting documents that appeared in The Lancet that were sent to the White House on the stationery of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine basically stating this is a conspiracy theory, couldn't have been a lab leak, natural origin, probably from a bat. So all of the people who were involved in drafting those documents had relationships that were not revealed, certainly in the Lancet statement, which appeared in February, did not reveal their competing interests. So right from the get-go, within minutes of the declaration of a public health emergency of international concern by the WHO, those who had interests in China to protect, those who had funded research at the WIV, who might have been concerned about being blamed in the United States, and people in China who didn't want to be blamed, found their interests coming together. And the business of the conspiracy theory set off at that point. Questions were raised in science in an article on January 31st, in which I think it was Richard Ebright said, just from the look of it, it might have been a lab leak. Because science is one of the leading scientific journals in the world, to have a leading expert make that suggestion, obviously 
those who had an interest in suppressing that idea had to act quickly, and they did. So this book is incredibly well-researched. It is detailed with many, many sources. I know you had four fact-checkers on this book. So you're in Toronto's endless lockdown. You're doing a deep (laughs) dive, (laughs) which we both lived through. You're doing this deep dive into the lab leak theory through documents. A group of independents are also doing this at the same time on the internet. A little later, actually. A little later. Okay. Uh, you're talking about the drastic group and they and they became a group probably in about May of 2020. As individuals, they were looking at publications that made them nervous. One group actually put out a peer-reviewed journal article saying a lab leak is not only not a conspiracy theory, it's bloody likely, and here's why. Others were looking at the publications of the people involved, and we're asking questions about that. And still others were just sort of digging away. And they finally sort of coalesced as a group about May of 2020. Okay. People should read your book because it is so in-depth. But for the purposes of this conversation, walk me through your main conclusions here. Walk me through what you found. I was sort of leaning towards there being something going on here that was not understandable in the way it was being presented by the end of January. I mean, I was looking at the Globe and Mail, I was looking at the star, I was seeing all this jump around of numbers of the of the ill in Wuhan that would double one day and be subtracted the next. Statements were coming out of the government of China that frankly made no sense. And so I began to just read the literature because there was no alternative. As soon as we went into lockdown in this country, it was impossible to find anyone answering phones and labs. People were sort of being very cagey about responding to emails. The reporter gene in me was just going red flag, red flag, red flag, pay attention, something's wrong here. So when I first became really convinced that there may have been a lab leak issue, it was not simply because I was reading papers by people with an interest who were publishing papers in, for example, Nature Medicine, saying lab leak, no, 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 not possible, completely natural origin, obviously some kind of spillover from an animal, possibly a pangolin. I mean, all of those statements were being kicked down the road by people who were not looking carefully at at the articles. And there were other articles coming out in, in learned journals and on preprint sites, which really went in a different direction. But the thing that really turned my head around were two papers. One, a preprint by a woman named Alina Chan at the Broad Institute, which is associated with Harvard and MIT, which said, oh my goodness, if you compare the behavior of SARS, the original SARS, to SARS-CoV-2, both of which use the same entry into a cell, the ACE2 receptor, If you compare how they behaved, SARS was like a bull in a china shop, which is absolutely normal for a new virus that jumps over from animals to humans. And SARS-CoV-2 changed almost not at all for the first three months that Chan was investigating, which suggested what everybody else had been saying since pretty much January of 2020, that this virus appeared to be perfectly well adapted to human beings from the get-go. 
It's highly unusual. In fact, I can't think of any other virus in which that is the case, that a jump from an animal to humans proceeds without a significant number of rapid mutations in order to adapt to a human immune system. That did not appear to happen with SARS-CoV-2. So that says, ha, was it in human cells in the lab? Was it in human beings in some place, perhaps Xinjiang, where a population is living in close quarters and perhaps not getting proper medical attention? Those were the possibilities that I was thinking of until I'm on vacation. A friend of mine named Mark Cote, who's a Canadian publisher who knew what I was working on, sent me a link to a publication that I'd never heard of before called Biosciences Resource Inc., I think, who had published a piece in June and then another in July on the origin question. And the one they published in July, which I will call the Latham Wilson thesis, which is the names of the two authors, basically recounted a very important piece of information that had not appeared in anything other than the drastic groups publications before that time. And that was that there had been a SARS-like infection in miners in 2012 who were working in a copper mine in Yunnan, which is in the southwest part of China. Six of them were clearing out bat feces from a mine. All six of them became incredibly ill with a SARS-like illness. Three of them died. They were in hospital in Kunming for something on the order of five months. And samples from those miners' lungs had been sent to various people for study. Zong Nanshan, the hero of the SARS epidemic in China, who called it for what it was, a coronavirus, not chlamydia, but also to Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Shi Zheng Li is the leading coronavirus expert now in China. She's been working on coronaviruses, pulling them out of bats' bums and bat blood and bat feces since 2004. She presides over the largest collection of coronaviruses in the world and had been doing very interesting gain-of-function experiments with coronaviruses derived from bats. Can you explain what gain-of-function is? Just Gain-of-function is when, in a lab, you find a way to make a virus either more infectious or more lethal or to move to a different host. There are many ways to do that. Some of them include manipulation of the genome, putting things in, taking things out. Some of them include something called passaging, in which you simply take serum from an animal which has been exposed to the virus, pass that serum to another animal who is then exposed to the virus, and on down the line until those animals can now infect each other with a virus that previously they had not been able to be infected by. So various methods of doing that, and Shi Zhang Li's lab had been doing that for quite some time. However, from 2013, after having, I think it was at least 13 samples of those miners' lungs in her possession, she and various other groups, including military groups, had gone back to that mine trying to extract viruses from the bats that they still found there. She published some information about what she found in 2013 onward, as had a guy named George Gao, who is the head of the China CDC, 
and has relations with Chinese military and the whole Chinese biotechnology universe. None of them, while publishing on what they found in those bats in that cave, had published on what they found in 2013. Just radio silence. We now know, because Shi Zheng Li published in January of 2020, the closest known coronavirus to SARS-CoV-2, something known as RATG13, which was a viral fragments that she pulled out of that lab in 2013. We had no information about the origin of that particular genome, although she had published bits and pieces of it. She published a bit of it, the RDRP, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is responsible for the virus's ability to adapt and to replicate itself. She published that little chunk in 2016 And she'd actually done the entirety of the genome sequence in 2018, but not published it. In other words, there was radio silence and yet total fascination by military, civilian, and the WIV investigators in what was found in that particular mine. When the Latham Wilson people got wind of that particular discovery, it was because a guy called The Seeker in India had found a master's thesis and a PhD thesis published in China, which described the miners' illnesses, their deaths, and detailed where samples of their lung samples had been sent. The people who wrote those theses, the MA thesis was written by a doctor who actually treated the patients, the PhD thesis was written by a guy who did his PhD under George Gao. It was clearly assumed that these were, whatever had afflicted them was a coronavirus and it was SARS-like. Yet, none of them published on what they found. And China, which was obligated under the international health regulations post-SARS to, like anybody else, inform the WHA of any SARS-like infection, in human beings in their territory, did not inform the WHO about those miners either. So we have this situation where miners who have something like what we know know as SARS-CoV-2, I mean, the symptoms are pretty much identical, are examined, samples taken, things are learned, and nothing is published, and all of it sort of circulates around the WIB. So the Latham-Wilson thesis was that whatever the original virus was that afflicted these miners actually mutated sufficiently while in those miners' lungs for months to create a kind of fascinating experiment in which a virus adapts itself slowly over time from one animal to another, in other words, from bats to human beings. And their thesis was that sometime in 2019, Samples were taken out of the fridge. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody got infected. And that was the beginning of this pandemic. And do we have any evidence that that lab was not strict in the way that it handled such viruses? Absolutely. Shi Seng Li, in an interview with Science Magazine in the summer of 2020, about the same time the Latham-Wilson thesis was published, interestingly, 
admitted that she did almost all her coronavirus work in what is called a BSL-2 lab, which is a minimum containment situation. It is not the kind of lab that we would permit any investigation of a SARS-like virus to be done. In Canada, it has to be done in a BSL-3, which is, you know, with the spacesuits, much more severe containment situation. But in China, where the regulations seem to vary, BSL-2 was where she did the work. There is also a Canadian connection in this story. Can you walk us through what happened in Winnipeg and what you think it means? Winnipeg is home to Canada's only biosafety level four lab at the National Microbiology Laboratory, which is cheek by jowl with an animal BSL-4. So human pathogens in the NML, animal pathogens under the same roof, but with a different group and under the control of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, as opposed to the NML, which is under the control of PHAC, Public Health Agency of Canada. NML was created in 1999. Three years later, two Chinese scientists, one by the name of Shang Yu Tu and her husband, Ketting Cheng, were working either with or close to the leader of the NML, Francis Plummer, otherwise known as Frank Plummer, a very important scientist in this country who had a particular interest in HIV and its origin and who had created through the University of Manitoba, where he was also a professor, a relationship to a university in Nairobi called the University of Kenya to try and figure out why sex workers there were not getting HIV in spite of the fact that they were heavily exposed. In 2003, SARS afflicted this country just like it afflicted China. And in 2003, Dr. Plummer was working with Ketting Cheng, the husband, a proteomics expert, who had just finished his master's degree at University of Manitoba. Within about 15 minutes, his wife, Shangyu Kyu, got a job at the NML. She was a doctor who was trained at Hebei in China. She also had an MSc in China immunology from 1990. The two of them had come to Canada via a stopover at the University of Texas from 1996, where they were working with a guy who was an immunologist interested in cancer. There was nothing in either of their backgrounds that suggested uh, interest in things like Ebola. Until 2005, when Chang Yu got hired as a biologist at the NML and went to work in the special pathogens area under a fellow by the name of Gary Kobinger. Within about nine years, she and Kobinger were able to create a monoclonal antibody cocktail for the treatment of Ebola. They were given a governor general's award. It was all lovely. That Ebola cocktail may have saved significant number of lives in the Ebola outbreak in Liberia in 2014. And at about that time, Shaggy Q began to work with George Gao, who was already back in China and who was interested in Ebola. And the question, of course, is why, if Ebola is not endemic in China, which it is not, why was China suddenly interested in doing work on Ebola? And the answer is China's interest in Africa, its Belt and Road Initiative in Africa, its creation of its first overseas military base at Djibouti, 
It's million Chinese entrepreneurs throughout Africa, et cetera. However, there was no BSL-4 in China. China had organized with France to create and build a BSL-4 after SARS. That BSL-4 was not available for use in China until 2018. It was at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. When it was available for use, it did not have permission from the relevant bureaucratic institution to import Ebola or Hendra or Nipah, other really serious bat-borne viruses, to be studied. So the work they did was done at the NML in Winnipeg. Military groups and civilian groups were working with Shanghai Q in a lab which requires a secret clearance. Among the military leadership who came to work with Shanghai Q was a woman by the name of Chen Wei, who is a major general in the People's Liberation Army and the leading bioweapons slash Ebola expert in China. First, George Gao was working with Zhang Yuq, and by the next year, it was Chen Wei. So for something on the order of six years, this relationship between a secret security clearance requiring lab in Canada was doing work for people affiliated with the Chinese military. And in fact, the leaders of the Chinese military with regard to bioweapons for six years. Is there any evidence that the general was in the lab physically? We don't have evidence as to whether she was or she wasn't. But what the lab did was create the conditions to test her Ebola vaccine, in spite of the fact that we already had made one and we already had licensed it to Merck, and that various immunoglobulin experiments were done there. In addition, there was, I think, at least two papers that dealt with creating an early warning device for Ebola, all of which suggest that people were in and out of that lab. We know that Chang Yu-Q brought in what she called students who were apparently affiliated with the University of Manitoba, who were all from China, to work in that lab. What we don't know is if those students were in fact from the third military medical group in China or with Chen Wei's group. Mm-hmm. So the scientist we've been speaking about was marched out of the Winnipeg lab. There are a lot of questions in Canada about this situation. What is on public record? What do we know? And what do you still want to know? We do not know why they were marched out of that lab. We have had statements that went from the beginning of the march out, which was in July of 2019, from the Public Health Agency of Canada, that it was administrative matters. Then it was policy concerns. And until June of last year, when a group called the Canada-China Special Relations Committee of the House of Commons began to demand information and documents unredacted about that march out and about their subsequent firing. And the government basically stonewalled them and said, no, 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 we're not sending unredacted documents. It wasn't until June that the business of national security was raised as the reason why these documents could not be presented to the parliamentary committee. We are still waiting to find out how this is going to resolve because When the House rose in June, 
the House had just passed a resolution demanding the production of unredacted versions of emails and documents relating to those firings. Because the House rose, that resolution was null and void, and so we're back starting all over again, trying to figure out whether and who will actually get access to those documents, whether it'll be an existing committee, whether a new committee will be formed, whether no one will get anything, still up in the air. In other words, we still don't know why these guys were fired. Hmm. And just to be clear for listeners, what is the connection between this Canadian story that we have just been speaking about and the overall lab leak theory? The theory that set me down that particular path was that somehow the NML had been involved in a very strange way with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which may have included the transfer back and forth of a predecessor or of SARS-CoV-2 itself. One of the access to information applications I made fairly early on was for any documentation or emails regarding the transfer of SARS-CoV-2 or any coronavirus in the last five years between China and Canada or Canada and China. And the application came back with no documents found. So I was able to satisfy myself that there had been no relationship between SARS-CoV-2 and the Wuhan Institute of Virology prior to the explosion of the pandemic. But the relationship between the NML and the WIV, between the NML and George Gao, between the NML and military researchers in China is extremely untoward, has not been explained, and needs to be. Mm -hmm. So still questions on that front. Huge. Turning back to the lab leak theory, there's a lot of information for people to digest. If you can just summarize what your view is on what happened with the lab leak theory. What is the likely conclusion from all of the research that you've done here? For me, the Latham-Wilson thesis makes a great deal of sense. I think there is no doubt. We know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was in receipt of a SARS-like viral samples, which it held in its possession from 2012 onward and has never published one word about until in December of 2020. Xi Zhengli finally acknowledged in an addendum to her original paper that appeared in Nature in late February of 2020 about the original SARS-CoV-2 virus. She admitted that she had those samples and had visited them recently. She said they did not contain SARS-CoV-2, but she still has not told us what they did contain. She didn't tell us why she revisited them. She didn't tell us when. And when you put that in concert with staffers apparently getting sick in November and Mm, having to go to hospital. This is the intelligence that the U.S. government released through the Wall Street Journal. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal released it and the U.S. government confirmed it. It actually was from another intelligence agency and it's deemed to be good. So Sickness happened. The WIV has denied in every way, shape or form that anyone ever got sick there ever, ever, ever. But this is actually not believable. And I think it was a lab accident. I think they were investigating and somebody made a mistake. And this happens. It happens in labs all the time. In the U.S., it happens twice a week. So let's talk about the public conversation about all of this. 
Now, what was the turning point on the lab leak investigation? What was the turning point in this being acceptable to now openly question and openly discuss in public and in the media? The turning point was the announcement that these two staffers had become sick in November. The epidemiological background to that story is that everybody who's looked at how the virus expanded in the population has said the same thing. One human entry, explosion thereafter. So it's not as if there were a few cases here and a few cases there. It was an explosion. Second problem, China had from the beginning, from December of 2019, ordered all of the original samples that were sequenced by commercial uh, operations in December of 2019 to be destroyed. It would not provide and has not provided any persons outside of the Chinese establishment any original samples. So we don't know anything other than what China has told us via publications about who got it first, where they were, what their relationships were to each other and to the Huanan seafood market. We just don't know. China has spent the last year and a half suppressing at every turn information about the first versions of the virus. Until we have that and until we have the epidemiology that says, you know, this is how it spread, we don't have facts. And when you suppress facts, there's a reason. So two people get sick in spite of Chinese scientists insisting to the WHO that no one at the WIV got sick and putting only in the index at the very end of the WHO's so-called investigation that two people at the Wuhan CDC, which is across from the market, also got sick. There has been nothing in the way of fact until that May admission of two people getting sick. Next, a guy by the name of Nicholas Wade publishes in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists his concerns that the actual genome shows evidence of tampering. And he is quoting very senior scientists in the United States who agree with him that this virus does show evidence of tampering. That really turned the tide because Nicholas Wade was a senior editor at Nature, a senior editor at Science, and then a senior investigator of science for the New York Times. You can't ignore him. You may not like him, but you can't ignore him. And then a group of scientists who had previously said conspiracy theory published a letter in science saying we have to investigate all possibilities, including a lab leak. And that's when the whole thing began to turn. Suddenly, W. Ian Lipkin, who published along with Christian Anderson in Nature Medicine, that letter saying, nah, 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 not possible, definitely from animals, turned around and said, you know, I didn't realize in China that they were doing these experiments in level twos. We really need to reconsider the lab leak possibility. So when a guy like Ian Lipkin turns around, everybody turns around. Hmm. And lastly, Elaine, I want to talk about the press, about the media, about our role in this. Oh, God. We dropped the ball. We dropped the ball. No, we didn't drop the ball. We buried the ball. What do we learn from this? Well, I'll tell you one thing that Nicholas Wade said that really rings in my head, and that is that science journalism isn't journalism. Science journalism 
is basically reporting on what somebody else is reporting in a learned journal and trying to explain it to the population. It's not the kind of journalism that you or I consider journalism to be, which is asking fundamental questions and pursuing them. So fundamental questions are not, as a matter of course, asked by science journalists. And if a leading scientist who's published something in Nature or Science or somewhere else says X, it will be reported and it will not be questioned, even though it should be. And this is the problem. So when science journalists are not standing up and saying, you know, there's something kind of fishy going on here. How come all this information is being suppressed in China? How come these guys with interest in China are claiming it's a conspiracy theory to even ask a question about a lab leak? It took Nicholas Wade to move it, to say, wait a minute, got to do something here. Well, it's a hugely compelling book. I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. And it's really giving, I think, all of us a lot to think about. So, Elaine, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 